Sorry, better just give um, time for the bodies to be cleared away uh, before we come to the sermon. Let's just give them another clap. Goliath has got his head screwed on before he teaches Sunday school. Good, well thank you very much indeed. Do please keep your Bibles open at 1 Samuel 17 and uh, we'll have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is light for the path, food for our souls, strength for the weary, comfort and challenge. And we pray that as we study your word this morning that you would speak to us in a personal, helpful and special way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I was uh, reading the astonishing account of two Iranian women who converted from Islam and became faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. In a country where people can be executed for doing that, um, for leaving Islam, that was remarkable enough. But they didn't stop there. Uh, They began sharing their faith as widely as possible, and uh, in the course of three years, they gave away 20,000, 20,000 copies of the New Testament to friends and family. So now they've got my attention. Uh, I haven't given away 20,000 copies of the New Testament in South Africa. There's nothing to stop me from doing it. It's not illegal to do it here. Uh, But I haven't done it. And I guess you haven't either. But in a country where it is illegal, these two ladies did it. But they didn't stop there. Uh, They started not just one, but two house churches as well. And inevitably they attracted the attention of the authorities and in due course they were arrested and they were sent to one of the most dangerous prisons in the world where torture and uh, execution are a daily routine happening. But they didn't stop there. Uh, They carried on sharing their faith and loving their fellow prisoners, bringing the hope of the gospel to people who had really no hope at all. And they did it knowing they could be executed at any moment. So, how were these two ladies able to do all that on their own? Uh, To us, I think it sounds frightening, it sounds impossible. How did they manage to do it? I guess even though our context is different, very different, Most of us are in fact surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. They might say they're following Jesus, but very often their behaviour says otherwise. And uh, at times we find that's rather scary. The pressure to keep quiet about being a Christian is always there. I feel that pressure just as much as you do. And we sometimes find ourselves thinking, I can't cope with this on my own. For some people, it can feel like that at home. For some Christians, home is a very difficult place to be quietly faithful to Jesus because what goes on in some homes is frankly pagan. And the pressures seem to be too great for us to bear 
on our own. Maybe it's like that for you at work. Uh, You see things happening around you that are clearly dishonest. Uh, there's, There's backstabbing, there's greed. Many offices are like that. You want to speak out against it, but you know that if you do, you'll be on your own. And even our thought life at times, what we think, can seem like a massive problem. Things we've seen on the television, things we've seen on the internet come back to us and trip us up when we least expect it. And it all seems too much to deal with on our own. And even if we don't actually put it into words, the cry of our hearts is for a strong leader to fight our battles for us. And we say to ourselves, I need someone to give a lead and to fight the battle for me. I need a champion. Now that's certainly what the people of Israel needed in our passage this morning, 1 Samuel 17. Very familiar story, but I want us to take a a fresh look at it for just a few moments this morning and see, first of all, what it actually says and then secondly what we can learn from it. And I know we've known this story for years but I want to suggest to you that all of us can learn something fresh that perhaps we haven't seen before. So come with me to verse 1. The Philistines have gathered at a place in Judah. Well, the Philistines have got no business being in Judah. Uh, The Philistines were the enemies of God's people and God had given Judah, the land of Judah, to his people Israel. But the Philistines have come into God's land, they've invaded, they've lined up for battle. The question is, who's going to fight for them? And uh, every single Israelite, bar none, was expecting the king to do it. That's the king's job, we know that, because back in 1 Samuel 8, the people asked Samuel the prophet for a king. Samuel said that's not actually such a great idea. But the people insisted, and they said to Samuel, we want a king over us because then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. So that's the king's job. That's what Israel wanted. And here in chapter 17, they do actually have a king to do it. Because verse 2 says, Saul was there. He's the king. Uh, And he's there with the army. So presumably... Saul is going to fight the Philistines. Now the big question in our series on the life of David is what kind of king is God going to give his people? What kind of a leader do you and I need to fight our battles? What kind of leader should we be following? That's the big question in these chapters of 1 Samuel. It's the big question in our series. Well, here the people have already got a leader. Uh, It's Saul. And so in verse 3, the armies line up with the Philistines on one hill, the Israelites on 
another hill and there's a valley in between. So who's going to lead the Philistines? Well, out he comes in verse 4. Uh, he's a champion from Gath called Goliath and he's, he's humongous, isn't he? He's enormous. No one knows exactly how to translate the measurements in the Bible but he's clearly massively taller than everybody else. And the description we have of Goliath is very, very detailed, which I think suggests it's from an eyewitness. So Goliath had that marvellous bronze helmet on that James was wearing. No one else has got a helmet like that. He's got a fabulous suit of armour that weighed 57 kilograms, plus or minus, so pretty bulletproof really. And on his legs he's got these bronze greaves, bronze armour. And I suppose if you're a giant, your shins are a long way down and you need something to protect them. He's got a bronze javelin on his back. He's got a huge spear with a terrifying iron point and a shield bearer walking in front of him. Here's the point. If you want a picture of threat and terror and overwhelming odds against you look no further than Goliath. And every single Israelite looked at Goliath and they knew, game over. So in verse 8, uh, Goliath shouts out, I don't know why you lot have even bothered to turn up. Uh, you're finished. I'm a Philistine and you're only servants of that weasel Saul, but pick your champion and the deal is, if he kills me, we surrender. If I kill him, you surrender. Do you agree? In verse 11, the Israelites consider the arrangement. They know they've got to find a champion who's equal to the challenge. And their first thought would have been, well, who is the tallest person here? Because he must be our champion. And immediately they knew the answer, so keep one finger in chapter 17. Turn back quickly to chapter 9 and verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2. Verse 2 says, Kish had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, now pay attention, a head taller than any of the others. So, obviously, Saul has got to be the man to go and fight Goliath. He's got to be striding out, leading God's people. But what actually happens? We'll come back to chapter 17 and verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But why are they so frightened? Well, very early on in his career as king, uh, Saul had disobeyed God. And back in chapter 13, you don't need to turn to it, we're told what the consequence of Saul's disobedience is going to be. Samuel goes to Saul and he says, you acted foolishly. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, 
he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now friends, the reason that Saul is so frightened is actually the same reason that we are frightened and afraid in the face of evil. The reason Saul is so frightened is because he's got a heart problem. His heart has turned away from the Lord. And because his heart has turned away from the Lord, just like our hearts turn away from the Lord, he's frightened. So he ought to be behaving like a king, leading his people out to battle, defeating his enemies, but he's frightened, he's defeated, and he's scared. Now that is a picture of the human condition. Because you see, every human being ought to be a king or a queen ruling God's world. That's actually what it means to be a human being. But we've turned away and that's why we're full of fear. And last week we learned in chapter 16 that uh, when David was being secretly anointed that verse 7 of chapter 16 right in the middle of the passage was the key verse. And it says man looks at the outward appearance. Now that's what Israel did when they chose Saul. And that's what they're doing now when they look at Goliath. They're looking at the outward appearance. But when it comes to choosing the champion of God's people, the Lord looks beyond the outward appearance. And God chooses someone through whom he, in his sovereignty, will work to fulfil his purposes for his people. And we need a champion like that. So let's look at the champion we're given by God. Because we can learn a lot from this. And here we're looking at verses 12 through to the end of the chapter. And I'm just going to highlight two very simple things about this champion. First, he is an outsider who sees our fear. He's an outsider who sees our fear. Did you notice... Uh, in verse 12, that David has got to be introduced to us. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Now why did we need to be told that? We were told that last week, back in chapter 16. And we already know that he's been anointed as the future king. And yet he's an outsider. And so by repeating this introduction, the writer is saying to us, I need to introduce you to him again because it's so easy for us to forget him. And did you notice right at the very end of the passage, have a look at it, verse 55, that Saul has to ask someone, whose son is that young man? Now you see, Saul should know because David has been playing the harp in the palace for months. But here he, he sort of can't quite place him. It seems that David is the kind of person who was very easily overlooked. And nobody, you know, nothing terribly special about him. And he comes from a big family, verse 12, because Jesse had eight sons 
Three of them are adults and they're old enough to be in military service, verses 13 and 14. We don't know what sons 4, uh, 5, 6 and 7 were doing. But last of all, the very last of all is little David. He's the youngest, he's the least important. But in verse 15 it seems he's just old enough to run a few errands for dad. So in verse 17... Jesse says to David, um, you know, mum's made a picnic for the big boys on the front line, so take this food to them, take some cheese for the commander, and come back in the morning and tell me that everybody's okay. So David steps out, and he arrives just as the army is going out to its battle positions. David leaves the food with the quartermaster. He rushes off to the front just in time to hear Goliath shouting his challenge. And David says to himself, you know, I'm absolutely sure I could take this guy on. And Eliab, the oldest brother, is livid. He's livid. Because you can imagine the other soldiers standing around Eliab saying, who is that little squirt over there? Eliab is sort of embarrassed that his little brother has turned up at this critical moment. And so he mocks him. Important point, verse 28. Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? But David is a believer. And that is the second thing that I want to highlight about the champion. He's an outsider who sees our fear. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that he is a believer under pressure. So look at David's reaction in verse 26. He sees Goliath defying the armies of Israel and he says, How dare he defy the armies of the living God? Now, friends, in case you've snoozed off, let me tell you, that's the whole point. David truly believes there is a living God. And he believes under pressure that there is a living God who acts to save those who trust him. He really believes that. He he doesn't just say that he believes it. He believes it under pressure. David is a believer and he's angry to see the enemies of God winning. Just as, by the way, a thousand years later, there was another believer who was angry. Because when Jesus saw the pain and the fear and the suffering caused by evil in God's world, he was angry. And we know that, don't we? Because back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus was with a a group of religious people who couldn't care less about a man who needed healing because it was against their tradition to do it on the Sabbath. And Jesus looked round in hot anger on that occasion, saying, in effect, how dare you ruin God's world like that? Now that is the spirit of David in our passage. How dare this man defy the armies of God? 
So David is a believer, but notice also he is a despised believer. Big brother Eliab looks down his nose at him and he says, why have you come down here? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. So David, you see, is despised by the people closest to him. Just as a thousand years later, there was another believer whose brothers didn't believe in him. And you can read about that later in John chapter 7, verse 5. But David isn't put off. He doesn't go home. And Saul gets to hear about it. And David says to Saul, don't be scared, I'll fight him. Now I want you to picture the scene, just take your mind back to the play, because it's it's an extraordinary picture. Because there you've got tall Saul, And he's talking with little David. That came across very clearly in the play. He's the youngest of eight sons. And yet in verse 32, little David says to tall Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. I'll fight him. Now do you remember last week we said that one of the features of Hebrew narrative is that the big idea is often right in the very middle of the passage. Well, verse 32 is right in the middle of chapter 17. So when David says, let no one lose heart, the writer is saying to you and me, remember that. It's important. But Saul says to David, no, That's no good. That's not going to work. Goliath is special forces and you're only a kid. He's got the latest technology. You can't possibly take him on. But look at David's answer in verse 34. Because it's really important to see what David says because it reveals where his trust lies. Just have a look at it. Basically what he says is... I've been keeping my father's sheep and tell you the truth, it's actually been quite tough because from time to time a lion or a bear would come along and try and steal a sheep and I would have to fight it one-on-one. There was no one else around to help. I did it and I won. But not because I'm a hero. But rather, verse 37 The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David really believes, because he's experienced it, that there is a living God who rescues his people. He says, I know because I've experienced it under pressure, so I'm willing to do it again. So David is a believer and he's willing to risk his life on his faith. Just as a thousand years later, there was a believer who risked his life for the belief that God would never, ever let one of his people go. And he went to the cross 
And on the third day he was proved right that the living God has never ever let go of a single believer. He's never ever abandoned a believer under pressure. And that, you see, is what David is foreshadowing for us here. And then there's that rather weird moment when David puts on Saul's armour and it doesn't really fit and he takes it off again and he goes out to fight with just a shepherd's staff and a few stones in his sling. And Goliath treats David in exactly the same way as his big brother Eliab. Do you notice the similarity? Eliab despised David and in verse 42, Goliath despised David. He says, do you think I'm a dog with that stick in your hand? Well, can you see those vultures circling around overhead? Well, you're their supper. And can you hear those jackals barking in the woods? Well, you're their breakfast. Goliath despises David. He thinks he's a complete nobody. So listen again to what David says. Because although the children's storybooks major on the action, the Bible does not major on that. The action, in fact, is all over in just a couple of verses. But the Bible writers are far more interested in what people say, because that reveals what they actually believe. So, verse 45, have a look at it. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. What's he saying? He's saying, Goliath, you look stronger than me. You are stronger than me. You're certainly better equipped than I am. You're more experienced. You're far bigger. But you're not just fighting me. You've defied the armies of the living God. And that is stupid. In fact, I don't think you realise just how stupid it is to set yourself against the living God. And so, verse 46, today, the Lord will hand over you to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Now, what were the crowd, what were the onlookers who were there then, on that day, what were they meant to understand from all of that? Verse 47. They're going to understand that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. God does save. He saves the believer. He saves everyone who belongs to him. But he doesn't do it by strength or cleverness or wealth or power, or brute force. No. God saves by means of a champion in weakness who trusts him. That's the message of the story. Let me say it again. God saves by means of a champion in weakness who trusts him. That's the message of chapter 17. That's why this story is in the Bible. 
And that's it, isn't it, really? I mean, you know the rest of the story. You know, you know the bloodthirsty bits. The Philistine army runs away, the Israelite army sets off in hot pursuit, but they're really only mopping up because the victory has been won the moment the champion appears on the scene whose heart is right with God, who's indignant to see the forces of evil triumphing in the world and who really believes under pressure that God rescues those who trust him. And even though he is despised and rejected, he's prepared to put his life on the line. And the victory is won. So who is this story about? Most times this story is told, the implication, I think, is that you and I should try and be a little bit more like David. You've probably heard a sermon like that before. You know, let's try and be a bit more like David. We can beat the Goliaths in our lives. But that's not quite right. The champion whose heart is right before God and who trusts God and is willing to put his life on the line for God's cause, he's not pointing to you and me. You see, if you and I see ourselves as David in this story, we're very quickly going to be disappointed and disillusioned. Now, David is pointing us forward to great David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus. He is the great champion. And there's one verse in the New Testament that makes it absolutely clear. You don't need to look at it now, you can check it out later. But it's Colossians 3, verse 15. And it's a verse that's not about us, it's about Jesus. And Paul writes this to the Colossians. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, in other words, having disarmed the Goliaths in the world, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus is the champion, and what you and I need to learn is not that we ought to be a bit more like David, but we do need to learn that it's an extremely sensible thing to be in David's army. Isn't that right? And if you and I want to find ourselves in 1 Samuel 17, we're actually rather like those Israelite soldiers pursuing their enemies at the end. Because we've also got a champion who's already won the battle. So you remember those ladies in Iran I was telling you about at the beginning. You see, that's what enabled them to do what they did. They knew that they were, they are, in Jesus' army. They knew they weren't doing it on their own. They knew that they were simply following the champion who's already won the battle. So, friends, this story is not a challenge for us to kind of take on the powers of darkness by ourselves this week. If we do that, we'll very quickly fall over and we'll be very discouraged. But if we're in Christ, if we're vitally united to Christ by faith, then we're safe. And we can read this story 
and we can hear its terrific message that the victory's already been won. And our place is in the champion's army. Resisting and even pursuing the enemy because the enemy knows he's been defeated. Well, it's a great story. It's a true story. And it's about Jesus. And it encourages me to trust him and to see the way that David foreshadows him and that the great victory all of us need has already been won. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you that though you were despised and rejected, you came from outside to be our champion and on the cross you defeated the powers of evil. And we know that one day the victory will be clear for all the world to see. So we ask that you would give us confidence to trust you this week whatever the pressures, whatever the challenges we might face. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.